Hi, if you're a friend of Nonprofit Lowdown, you might be interested in my weekly free newsletter where I send out weekly inspiration for fundraising, notices about any upcoming events that I'm doing, and a cute dog picture. So check it out at riawong.com, R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G.com. Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. I am very happy, appropriately, <laughs> because today my guest is Dr. Ellen Wong, who is a naturopathic doctor and chief happiness officer. Today, we are going to be talking about sustaining happiness. Ellen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Rhea. This is going to be awesome. Also, I had to do it. Two Wongs are going to make it right. Sorry, I had to do it. All right. Before we jump into the content, tell us a little bit about yourself and your path. What is a chief happiness officer? How did you get there? Oh, first of all, I just need to, I need to ask you, like, how long have you been thinking about that two Wongs make the right thing? It just popped in my head right before you got on. I know. I have to be <laughs> forgiven for not thinking that one through. <laughs> I've never had that, obviously, because I haven't had another Wong interview me. So this is pretty, <laughs> this will stick with me for a long time. Okay. But to answer your question, like with a background in naturopathic medicine, I've always focused on working with people who struggle with anxiety and depression. And it was a path that I connected with patients who experienced that because it was a path that I experienced a lot as well for myself. And what I started to realize was that a lot of people want to resolve their anxiety and depression or any level of that, right? Like anxiety doesn't have to be like panic attacks and depression doesn't have to be crippling and you can't leave your home. It can be all sorts of levels. But what I started to realize was most people wanted to not feel anxious and not feel depressed, but then they wanted. And it's interesting because as a doctor, that's not what you're trained to do. As a doctor, you're trained to help people not feel sick. It's like you can for lack of a better way of describing it, get rid of the symptoms, then you're good. The thing is like, most people don't want to just be free of disease. They, when I say feeling healthy, there's an image that comes to most people's mind, right? It's you're vibrant, you're energetic, you have this kind of zest for life and you want to be able to do the things you want to do and the things that are meaningful to you. And there's a bit more than just being on paper, you measure fine or based on your blood work, you measure quote unquote fine. So what I realized and for my, it resonated because that's what I wanted for me, right? Like I was given a quote unquote clean bill of health. I was no longer measuring on the anxiety scale. I was no longer measuring on that depression scale, but that's not all. I wanted more. And I realized that my medical training only got me so far. And I say that with a lot of respect to doctors because I feel like there's a very important role that doctors, whether it's conventional, naturopathic, alternative, whatever it is, a role to play for that. But then I wanted to take people beyond that. And I wanted to take myself beyond that. And so my journey then started off with what everyone does when you want an answer to something and it's you go to Google and then you start there. And it just it combined my research background. And I did a lot of reading around what it means to be happy and what contributes to our happiness. And honestly, the research is nowhere near the amount of research we have for drugs, like pharmaceutical drugs, because that's where re scientific research is really focused on in the last... Happy people years. don't buy pharmaceuticals. What's the... 
the incentive for the research dollars. No, it's true. It's true. No, it's totally true because research goes where, unfortunately, research often goes where money can be made. And you can patent a drug. You can sell a drug. It's actually really hard to package happiness and sell it. And so unfortunately, like it's not just happiness, a lot of like mindset research, psychological research, like none of that stuff really exists to the level of pharmaceutical research. And that's that could be a podcast on its own, right? But regardless, I dove into the research and then I started realizing a lot of this isn't it's not just about research, it's about the experience and what does it mean to live a very happy, joyful life. So I took a lot of courses and trained with some leading experts that teach at a Harvard or Yale or universities where there is, they are focusing on research like this and have departments entirely dedicated to this. I learned from them. I also discovered that there were countries in the world that ranked on this happiness index consistently every year in the top 10. And I'm like, they're doing something there that is different than what we are doing in North America. So I traveled there. I wanted to actually experience the culture and what it felt like. And I wanted to absorb what it meant to live in a country that ranked so high on happiness. And so that just in in combining all of those things, it made me realize that, yes, happiness is very individual. But honestly, there are, there are specific foundations that if you address you will be a happier human being. Okay, I love that. I'm going to put a pin in that because I want to go deep on that topic. But one thing that is occurring to me is coming out of the pandemic, I'm just reading all of these stories in the news about high levels of anxiety and depression, particularly among young people. Is that what you're also seeing? And if so, what do you think have been the factors contributing to it? One big factor is this idea of uncertainty. Because... The pandemic threw us, everyone, into a uncharted, unknown territory. And when things are unknown, they feel unsafe. And our brain then tries to come up with all these scenarios to help us feel safer. But when we don't have a solution to that, it can make us feel very lack of peace is how I would just there's this constant state of turmoil because you just don't know. So a lot of and I would say, yes, definitely a lot of younger people, but a lot like on the way you work, the people you worked with, how we did our work and delivered our services just got thrown out the window. And to that point, it wasn't no one knew what was going to happen at the end. It's one thing to be thrown, just throw things out and be like, I don't know how this is going to land, but I know it's going to land in a year or six months. And then just there will be an end to this. This was a situation where no one knew what the end was going when it was going to happen and when it did and how it was going to look. So that was one big thing, uncertainty. I think there was a forced learning curve for a lot of people around just how to manage day-to-day things. And again, when humans are allowed to learn and grow at their pace, it feels fine. When you're suddenly thrown in and like even as simple as like suddenly all students, no matter where they were, grade school to university, suddenly had to learn all these online platforms. It's a massive learning curve on top of the education you were supposed to receive. And that causes a lot of angst and anxiousness, particularly if you are in a situation where you don't have unlimited resources to solve this problem. At the very beginning of the pandemic, we suddenly realized how many students did not have access to stable internet, which a lot of people take for granted. How do you do online learning if you don't have stable internet? Right. And we had students sit in parking lots of schools because that was the only way they could figure that brought light to something that we haven't really considered 
in a really long time. So I think the other thing the pandemic did was like unveil all of the stuff that is happening in our world that we haven't really thought about. And three, the lack of social connection. We as human beings have always thrived when we connect in person. I think the pandemic has opened the doors to connecting in different ways that we didn't think about before. But it also, and I think like social media, Zoom, like all these things, like there's good and there's bad, right? Like the good is it, it is a sense of connection. You can actually form meaningful connections with people through Zoom. You truly can. It depends on how it's facilitated and how you do it. The flip side of that is I think, again, spending more time on things like social media. If you haven't specifically curated your social media to positively fuel you, you're going to be in situations now where you're comparing yourself to other people. Other people's lives look better. Even if you know that filters solve this problem, even if you know that this current background I'm sitting in front of looks fine, but you have no idea what's happening right outside my Zoom walls, it doesn't matter. Like we logically know that, but emotionally, we don't always understand that. And so you end up in situations where there's more ability to compare, which always doesn't feel good. And the ability to filter through that noise and understand that what is happening outside my Zoom wall right now could be utter and complete chaos. And you don't know that. Like To logically keep that in mind and to filter your reality through that requires a lot of effort. That mental effort is available to us when we're not sitting there fighting things like a pandemic and all the other things that need to happen, right? Brought up a lot of things that have probably been underneath the surface that we haven't really addressed, we didn't realize was there, or we had the capacity to handle. But then when there was a pandemic on top of that, all of our attention and mental energy went to that. And we no longer had the capacity to filter the messages that we that we usually would be able to filter. Yeah, that's really helpful. As we're recording this, I'm actually at my old high school and I'm teaching a class to teenagers. And I've just noticed a very high level of anxiety and disconnectedness. And certainly amongst my executive director friends, we talk about the younger generation workforce. So I guess I'm wondering, is it that in fact, their experience of stress is different than previous generations? Or is it just that they're better about talking about it? I think they are under more stress and they are talking about it. I think it's both. Because joked about this with someone else the other day, like the more tools we now have to speed things up, the more we expect ourselves to get done. So when it was normal to have to pick up the phone and call someone to get an answer to something, you, if they didn't answer, you're like, guess I can't do that right now. I guess I'm going to have to wait for them to call me back. And that was okay. That was the pace at which we worked. And then emails came in and were like, when I email someone, I assume they can see it and they can get back to me within like X amount of days. Then we surpassed that and now we have messaging. And we're like, when I message you and I can see that you've seen my message, how come you're not replying to me? And we fill in breaks. So the faster we are able to do things, the more we expect ourselves to do. And so I think, and I also teach at an educational institution, like I work at the naturopathic college. So I see this in the students. I totally get what you're saying, Ria. Like we are expecting them to do more because we have the technology to do more. And because as the world progresses, at least in my situation, yeah, we used to teach medicine because that's what you needed to do. Now we teach medicine and we teach practice management because you have to build a business. And then to build the business, you have to learn how to use social media. And now we've got to teach that as well. They didn't 
they weren't able, we haven't gotten to the point where we reduce the amount of basic knowledge and basic background knowledge they have to learn. We still teach that. And then we teach more because that's what is needed now. And what I find interesting is what we haven't adapted in the education world to reduce the amount of information we teach them that they can actually look up. Because there is that, right? Like we now, we still teach knowledge, factual things that they can look up. I'm not saying we shouldn't teach it. I'm saying we haven't adapted the way we teach it. And so when I look at the students, I'm, we're still teaching them the structures of the human body because you need to know where the bones are and the muscles are. It's fine that we spend the same amount of teaching that as we did when we didn't have this information at our fingertips. Whereas now I can literally ask Siri and she will tell me the accurate answer. And we haven't adapted. So we think we've put more pressure and more things to learn on our younger generation. We've also, they're also now more open to talking about it. So it's a double win if you will. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. With my students, what I'm finding is, and again, maybe it's just the environment, but it feels like they're under pressure to perform to a certain standard. There's this idea of if you don't go to an Ivy League college, like you failed. And so there's this, it's almost like the growth versus fixed mindset thing. They're like, just what's the right answer? And sometimes I just wonder, are we doing them a disservice, putting them in this world where there are, are right answers and you get an A and you're performing as opposed to helping them to learn a process or learn how to think or learn how to struggle through something where there is no quote unquote answer. I think educators are wrestling with this. It's, I find this, and I'm making some sweeping generalizations here, but I really find that education doesn't evolve. How we teach and how we think about education doesn't evolve as fast as technology and the world is evolving. So there is this gap between that and it's like educational. There's just, I, again, for a lack of better word, there's some old school thinking around education and how it needs to be delivered and what needs to be taught. And it's just a different world out there now. And I say this all the time. I'm like, happiness and all the things that contribute to happiness is a fundamental human desire. And we don't talk about it. We don't teach about it in school. Yeah. Why not? Ellen, let's talk about it. Let's teach about it right now. You say happiness you know, being the kind of cranky New Yorker I've become. I'm like, that just seems so fluffy. Is it really about happiness? What does that even mean, Ellen? So walk me through, if you will, what is happiness? This is, I really love this question because it's something that I wrestled with for a while too. Because when you think about the idea of happiness, you're like, it's fluffy. It's like this like concept that's just floaty out there. And what does it actually mean? And I differentiate what happiness is versus pleasure versus joy. And the way I separate it is that I think pleasure is a sensation. It's often what we mix with happiness. It's the, it's a sensation of I feel good in the moment. That can come from many things. It can come from watching something funny. It can come from eating a piece of chocolate. It can come from buying something. It can come, these are all, and it's, there's no, it's not bad. It's just a level of that feeling of a positive emotion. Happiness then to me is an experience. It's something that you dive a little bit deeper. It lasts a little bit longer. It has more ripple effects to the things around you. And then there's this concept of joy, which to me is, it's a state of being. It's literally how you wake up, how you think, how you, whatever. All of those things are important. It's just that society has a spoken thing on the concept of pleasure more than any. 
in the interweave, like you can have sitting down and eating a great meal with a good friend you connect with can be both pleasure, happiness, and joy. It's just that sometimes we get really focused on like the pleasure part, which again is important. It's just a shorter lived thing. And to your point about like, why is this important? Like, why do I need to be happy? I actually wanted to answer that question because that was something that I thought it's weird. It's a fundamental human desire. And yet we ask ourselves like, but why is it important to be happy? And if we really wanted to get down to like factual part of it, happier people are healthier. They have stronger immune systems. They have a stronger cardiovascular or like their heart systems. They have healthier relationships. They are more creative. They are better problem solvers. They have better, like in a workforce, happier people have less absenteeism. They're more productive. They're able to sort of function better within that organization. Organizations with happier people actually make more money. Salespeople who are happier make more money. So we're going to actually get down into the ROI. There are some very like concrete things that happiness can bring you. And now they're looking at the fact that people who are happier may actually live longer with a better quality of life. And so if you actually sit there and you're like, why do I need to be happy? This is why. These are all the things that people want. They want to live healthier. They want to live longer. They want to have better quality of life. They want to solve problems. They want to do more things of the things that they want to do. Like they want to contribute more. Like happier people actually also give back to society more. There's why not be happy is actually the question. Yeah. As you're talking, I was really reflecting on the fact that a lot of the ways that we talk about mental health is with respect to a, from a lack, right? You don't have peace of mind. You don't have calmness. You don't have happiness. So we talk a lot about depression. We talk a lot about stress. We talk a lot about anxiety, but we don't actually spend any time talking about the opposite of like, how do you find happiness? So Ellen, how do we find happiness? (laughs) Million dollar question. So the first thing I want to say textualizes is that I try very hard to think about happiness as something that I create and not something that I choose. One thing that really triggered me and upset me when I was feeling depressed and anxious was when people told me that, oh, it's your choice. When you're feeling that way, when you're very stressed, when you're overwhelmed, like you don't feel like you have a choice. And to point, what do I choose from? To have a choice is to assume you can choose from something. So from what am I choosing this happiness, right? Like it's just a really weird thing. And so I have really, and I still work on it, is like I always remind myself it's something that I create. So then what do I create? And previously, earlier in our conversation, I said that happiness is extremely individual and it is. But there's like this fundamental set of things that I think if we all address, we will become happier. And so I created this framework called the nine pillars of happiness. And happiness is the acronym for the nine things that I think we need to attend to. And now for all the high achievers and the high performing people listening to this, you do not have to ace all nine of them. No one perfects the nine pillars of happiness that it really is not the point. The point is to go back to these nine pillars and go, I am not feeling as happy as I would like to be. Which one of these pillars can I attend to raise my level of happiness? And they all interweave, right? And so with your audience being such a huge group of people who are in the nonprofit sector, I think there's a couple of pillars that you'll all score very high on because that that is what drives your work. But I'm also willing to bet some of these other pillars are also sliding because we're focused on specific ones. So let me walk you through the nine pillars and then we can 
dive a little bit deeper into whichever one you would like to dive into, Ria. So the acronym happiness, H stands for health, right? The A is authenticity, living an authentic life true to you. The first P is purpose. The second P is productivity. And my definition of productivity is not trying to do as much as you can in the least amount of time. It's about being able to control your use of time towards what matters to you as a human being. The I stands for inner peace. The N stands for nature. E is emotional mastery. The first S is social connection. And the second S is sustainability. All right. You just mic dropped. I am reflecting on all of this. Okay. This is going to be a high achiever question. If I listened to you and I was like, nine things, Ellen, that's a lot. What are like, are there a couple that I'm like, if I really nail this, this is going to make a huge difference? I would, it's really, it's a really good question. I would say the first thing to master is that productivity piece. Because again, productivity not being do as much as you can in the least amount of time, it's controlling your use of time. Because when we master how we use our time, we can then dedicate it to the other things, like making sure that I attend to my health, making sure that I am making sustainable decisions, making sure that I live a life of purpose. Everything revolves around the fact that we have the one sort of unrenewable resource, which is time. And if we can master our use of that, then I think we have the ability then to attend to any of the other pillars. Ellen, you said something that I think is really interesting and relevant because I feel like, especially in the nonprofit sector, we're so Mm -hmm. purpose-driven that we actually use purpose as a way to avoid the other things. Like I can't tell you the number of EDs I know who have burnt themselves out or don't take care of their health or their relationships have really gone by the wayside because they're a martyr to the cause. Oh, I'm so purpose-driven. I'm so about the mission. Can you talk about the ways in which some of these concepts can also maybe be weaponized in a not healthy way? I'm going to be very blunt and offer a perspective. Sometimes I think when we really get stuck or hung up on one of those pillars, it is because we are using it to avoid dealing with other things. It is a method of avoidance. And I can say this as a doctor who saw people who obsessed with their health. There is a healthy level of managing health. Then there is the deep dives into the super strict diets. It's the deep dives into one thing after another to solve one thing. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, we all want to feel healthy. I don't particularly, and this is my personal opinion, it's always been how I treated my patients. I don't actually think going on an extremely restrictive diet is healthy because you will eventually start to feel things like, I'm feeling deprived because I can't eat this thing. And then if I do eat it, I feel guilty. I feel deprived of social connection because I can't actually go out and eat with my friends because the restaurants they eat at don't necessarily give me the ability to eat the things that I think I need to have to stick to eating. Any obsession with any of those pillars is just a mechanism for you to doing something else that you are afraid of doing or thinking about. I... 110% agree with that. And actually, in some ways, I've been talking about the fact that I'm a recovering workaholic and 
I think my husband might say I'm still very much in workaholism, but the ways in which I use work as a way to validate, I'm working hard, therefore, like I'm a, I get lots of praise from that externally, but also maybe allows me to avoid other things in my life that I don't necessarily want to spend as much time on. Totally. And it's one of those things where the workaholism thing is really interesting because I, that's how I landed in the hospital the first time was because I just burnt myself out to the point where and it was the way of avoiding dealing with other things in my life. You're right. It earns you praise. It earns you validation. We also are in a society where our self-worth is tied to our work, right? Our identity is tied to our work, right? And it just fuels that. If your self-worth is tied to how much your output is, nothing you do is going to be good enough because you're always going to feel like you should be doing more. And therefore, if you're not attending to work, somehow you are less worthy and you're less important and you're less valuable. That is such a deep concept. Do you find that there are aspects to this as well? Because I just think we're both Asian and I think at least in the Asian culture, it's very much predicated on work and like work is your value. So I'm curious if in your studies on happiness, if there are culturally aspects to how people define happiness or pursue happiness or don't pursue happiness. It's the, Oh, this is such a good question. And there's so many areas we could talk about this. So here's the thing. I also think, I think there's a lot of cultures where your ability to feed your family came from your ability to work. We like go back like generations and generations ago. Your ability to feed your family came from like how much time you spent in the field and could you sell the thing at the market, which then meant you had to spend time at the market. There was, there's a lot of like deep inherited beliefs around this. And so, yeah, your ability to feed your family came down to like how many hours you put into work. But again, technology has changed that for us. And then we filled the void. Like we filled that gap. I shouldn't say void. It's like it now takes us less time. So then we have 50. Like now instead of taking an hour, it takes 10 minutes. So now you have 50 extra minutes. So what do we do? Oh, let's like do something on top of that, right? Like it's just how we fill that gap. I think it's also very interesting then to contemplate the idea of this like inability to sit still and just be because we just want to feel like we do something really quickly and then we like can't sit still because we're so used to being that hamster on the hamster wheel. And so we find another wheel to go run on because it feels weird to just sit down and do nothing. Like, I think there's like a whole aspect to that. It's interesting. You actually brought up this conversation at this point, actually, like way when we first started. But it's like, it's interesting that there are some cultures who don't talk about happiness as something that is important to the extreme that if you're unhappy, you can't talk about it. So it's, again, really interesting fact a lot of the countries that rank really high on the happiness level, a lot of those Nordic countries, they have one of the highest use of antidepressants in the world. Now, this is interesting because I'm going to take you to the flip side, which is there are countries like Korea and Japan have the lowest use of antidepressants. They also have some of the world's highest suicide rates. So now when you think about that, the use of an antidepressant is predicated on two things. One, they have access to it. If you don't have access to the medication, you can't use it. So like automatically countries that have less access to antidepressants rank lower on the antidepressant use list because they don't have it. So like, we have to think about that. Two, it's predicated on does your culture talk about it? Because in Asian cultures, we typically don't talk about mental health. Again, sweeping generalizations, I think it's changing, but it's still a very big taboo topic. 
So if you don't talk about it, I guess you're not talking to your doctor about it, which also means you're not using the antidepressant because you had no access to it. You didn't ask for it, right? Thirdly, in the Nordic countries, and they've studied this, it's very interesting. To them, they have access to the medication. They also have fantastic healthcare. So what happens is they don't feel happy. They seek healthcare. That healthcare comes in the form of antidepressant, yes, and other things, but we're measuring antidepressant use, so we'll talk about that. So they have, they're open to talking about it. They have access to healthcare. They get medication supported by their government. They actually are happier because they have access to medication. They can talk about it and they feel supported by their government. So it's interesting that this is like in the mix. The people I've heard people say to me, like, I don't believe that those countries are actually happy because they are on antidepressants. And I'm like, because we're looking at the idea of antidepressants incorrectly. There's too many factors in there for you to make that direct one-to-one. And also, I actually don't think depression is the opposite of happiness. I really don't. I actually think depression is a slew of negative emotions, the opposite of which is having a lot of happy emotions. It doesn't necessarily equate happiness because to me, again, if happiness was the complete opposite of antidepressants, Presence, then we go back to that argument, which is then people who are on antidepressants aren't happy. And I actually don't think that's true. Like people can be on antidepressants and live a good life and happy life. And there are people who aren't on antidepressants. And even if you were to give them that, it wouldn't solve it. Such an interesting point. One thing that comes up for me, and again, let me know if this is like beyond the scope of what you study, but I'm doing a lot of reading right now independently about epigenetics and inherited mm. trauma. And one argument I could make is, oh, okay, like, Ellen, certainly the happiness is a thing I create in my life. But also, what about all of this stuff that is coded in my DNA that is inherited trauma from generations or traumatic events or the trauma of like slavery or whatever it is? Like, how does that fit in the happiness framework? Mm-hmm. You ask fantastic questions. Yeah, <laughs> those are great questions. So, up until this point, we do know, research will tell you that there's X percent of your happiness that is determined by your, okay? That X percent, depending on what you read, will hover, let's say, around, um, I'm going to say 40% on average. However, this research was done at an era where we were just understanding how to study this and not even close to the era of what you're talking about, which is understanding epigenetics. So what we do know about our genes is that the expression of these genes, we all inherit genes, that's fine, that's fact. The expression of these genes are turned on and off depending on life situations and events. So that 40% that science is hovering around because we don't have any other evidence around it, I would say maybe the 40% is like the pinpoint in the middle. I would say the circle around it is actually probably really large on, like, do you know what I mean? Because of life situation. So if you Google it, it will tell you that like happiness is dependent partially on genes and that's 40% of your happiness. I think this was a number that science sort of concluded at the level with which we could study it. We are nowhere close to understanding epigenetics and how that affects us. And again, to the point, Point is like I think there's lots of people who may have inherited epigenetic trauma have resources to work through some of that and therefore increase their capacity and their potential to be happier and some that don't have that. So 
I think it's a really interesting question. I don't think there's a hard, I don't there's like a hard science research backing my answer to this, but based on what I understand of epigenetics, I don't think we're anywhere near understanding or studying. Yeah, it's such a fascinating field. And I think just understanding that even the concept of inherited trauma or trauma at all is really, it, it's evolving so quickly. I'm just now finishing reading what happened to you and the extent to which all human beings have experienced some level of trauma, I think is, I'm sure, you know, so much more than we ever thought. So let me switch tacks a little bit. So if I'm listening to you and I'm an ED or a leader of an organization and I'm like, cool, Ellen, yes, I hear you. Having my workforce be happier will benefit me, will benefit the organization, will benefit the people that we serve. Tactically, what does that look like? How, as a leader, can I help my people to be happier? Another really big deep dive. But when I take my pillars of happiness and then apply it into sort of a workplace organization thing, first thing, again, control over use of time. Like we have to start there. Once people feel in control of how they can spend their time and what they spend it on. And I'm not, I said this yesterday, I was like, I'm not delusional. Like I understand that there's parameters within where things work. Like I understand happiness. I study it. I'm not always happy, obviously. So there's parameters. So, you know, with that in mind, like controlling your use of time, allowing people to ex to be their authentic self, which to me means allowing them to use their strengths in situations that allow them to showcase what they can contribute. I think a lot of times we try to keep an organization organized. And sometimes that feels like, therefore, you're in this role and that was the role you were hired to do. And so even though we've discovered that you have this interesting skill that could contribute elsewhere, we're like, but this is your role. So please go stick to your role and do this thing. And I think people need the ability to be able to use their strengths. I think organizations also need to make sustainable decisions. And I have seen this in multiple situations where the organization has a lot of things that they want to do, so they keep pushing through and doing it without really considering the people who are helping push this through to make it work, is it sustainable work for them? And that's also partially why people burn out, right? Like it's an idea of we just keep pushing. Sometimes slowing down a little bit is more beneficial in the long run for everybody who is working there, including the organization as like a whole, right? These are some things that I like, I want to talk about with organizations and things like health. Like I have spoken to people who are like, I have, we give people health benefits and we have a wellness program. People don't get involved in it. And I'm like, yes, because you haven't facilitated a culture where this is important, right? Like we host yoga things during lunch break. I'm like, so now we have to choose between lunch and yoga. There's just, the culture has to be there. And I think the most important way to culture shift is the people leading the organization has to embrace these things themselves. Yeah. I've seen it. multiple times, right? Like we have workplace wellness programs. I'm like, and is the person who leads the organization doing those workplace wellness things? Because you lead by example. Yeah, that's so important. Guilty as charged. I definitely recall being an ED, being like, you guys should definitely take your weekend. Don't answer your emails at 11 o'clock. And I will, but don't feel pressure to do that. And it's do as I say, not as I do sort of situation and it didn't really work. And I see that now. Yeah. And there's, again, there's no blame. Like, I think there's just, we are like in this 
in this environment in society right now where like you're supposed to keep going, you're supposed to keep hustling, you're supposed to like in order for your organization to succeed, you have to meet all these goals. And like I have to report to my stakeholders. I hear all of this. And I'm not saying that there's a simple thing that's going to switch like that. But I'm just saying we need to get a lot more mindful of what we are doing and how we are doing it. And I feel like that sustainability and making sustainable decisions is really is really going to mean something in the long run. Can we take it to that question of sustainable? What does that really mean or what does that really look like? Because, and I guess what I'm wondering is according to who, right? Because I think we all have different levels of what I can handle or the output. And then there's always also what the organization needs to do that are deliverable. How do we manage the tension between what I think is sustainable as an individual and like what the business needs are? I think they're very married. Like it's very hard to separate if you are the person leading the organization, the business needs and your needs. Like they, they kind of, it's so hard to describe. It's like this, like they like mold into each other and then they affect each other and all those things. And I would maybe summarize it like this. If you're the person leading the organization, driving all of the KPIs and the ROIs and all the things that we measure and all the projects and all the deadlines and all the deliverables, and you feel tired looking at it and thinking about it, the people who are helping you deliver it are probably also tired because there's only, there's a pace at which things become not sustainable when it's constant. So I will say this, like, there are going to be times in a business, whether you are new to this or whether you're an organization that has been running for many years, there's always like ebbs and flows. There's seasons of launches and then there's seasons of downtime. There's no, no one is like this stable floating along a river all, all the time in their business. That's not what I'm advocating for. I don't think that's realistic. I think there's going to be times when there is a massive push because we have to get something out the door and that's fine. We are insanely uncomfortable with that downtime afterwards because then we're like, oh, look, there's a void again. Let's fill it with the next project and the next thing we're going to do. Like allow for recovery. Your body is not meant. Your body is not meant to be like in that high gear all the time. And if your organization is actually just made up of a whole bunch of bodies working towards the same thing, then your organization can't also be in high gear all the time. We don't allow for rest and recovery as an organization in a whole and as a whole. And I think we need to do that because the organization is simply just a bunch of bodies working together. Oh, that is so good. And you know what? That resonates a lot because I just think about from an agricultural perspective, when we were all farmers or whatever, there were times of harvest and times of hibernation, right? But in this modern day era, it's all harvest all the time. Ellen, this has been so fun. We can talk to you forever, but are there a couple of things coming up that you want folks to know about? Do you want to talk about your summit coming up? Oh, yes. For the first time ever, I am launching a happiness summit. I'm half laughing because... Rhea knows that I didn't realize I was running a summit until I was told I was running a summit. So essentially what this is going to be, a series of interviews and presentations from entrepreneurs, leaders, thought leaders in their respective fields on those different pillars of happiness. And I'm hoping that this experience is very practical because I understand that idea that happiness doesn't always feel practical. And so with each presentation, I wanted to make sure that there were key takeaways, actionable items, and I will reinforce this message over and over again. You do not have to go to the summit and think you have to figure out all of those actionable items and do them all at the same time. 
the whole idea is to give you information so that when you think about, I'm not as happy as I feel, which area can I work on? There is a resource for you to tap into to then reflect on that particular area that builds towards your happiness. And so I'm launching this on March 20th, which coincides with the International Day of Happiness as declared by the UN. And so it'll run that whole week. Again, it's actually free to sign up, tap into whichever sessions you feel like will benefit you. And I'm really just hoping to spread the message. Like I think happiness is probably the most underutilized tool of positive impact in the world. And I really want to change that. I'm going to start that with this happiness summit. That is awesome. And if people happen to be listening to this past the 20th, is there any way to join the summit or get yes. the recordings? Yes, that will be made available for sure. Awesome. I will make sure to put all of the information about the summit in the show notes, along with your LinkedIn profile if folks want to get in touch with you. But Ellen, this has been so great. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for providing me with an opportunity to share this message. Go forth and be happy, everyone. Thank you